0: For years, they've sort of been quantifying or trying to quantify with quite mixed results that forgetful, frazzled stereotype, and they're only beginning to look at what we gain. And what they've found so far is pretty amazing. Hi, everyone. Welcome
1: to the Parenting Translator newsletter and podcast. I'm Dr. Kara Goodwin, and today I'm so excited because I'm here with Chelsea Connaboy, who wrote a recent book called Mother Brain, which I think is just a fascinating topic because we all have heard so many myths and misconceptions about quote-unquote mommy brain, and can't wait to hear all about the research on what is actually going on in our brains during this very exciting transition to parenthood. Um, So Chelsea, could you please introduce yourself? and? Tell us why you chose to write this book.
0: Sure, yes. I am a health and science journalist. I spent uh, most of my career in newspapers. And I was an editor here at a a newspaper in Maine in 2015 when my, my first child was born. And, you know, like I was a journalist. I had read all of the books. I had done all of the parenting classes. I really felt like I had done my homework to prepare her parenthood and still I was blindsided by it <laughs> and and particularly by the experience of just being really overwhelmed with worry for my baby and feeling that like shift in myself, you know, my inner life and not having the words to explain it. So this book really came about because I went looking <laughs> I went looking for those words. I went looking for information that could help me understand what I was going through. And I really, I found it in the parental brain science.
1: Amazing. I also experienced that as a new mother. I remember like, I thought, you know, I had a PhD in child psychology. Like I thought, of course I'll be the perfect mother. Like I already know everything. And it quickly became apparent that I knew nothing. (laughs) and I felt completely clueless Mm -hmm. and it doesn't matter, you know, what training, what experience, what research you've done. You know, the experience of parenthood is just so unique and it, it can't even really be put into words. It's hard to even describe. Yeah. So I think we've all heard of this idea of mommy brain and everybody, anyone who's become a parent, you know, whether mother or father or, you know, however you identify yourself as a caretaker, anybody knows that becoming a parent changes you, like changes you to the core. But this topic is very rarely discussed. You know, people talk about like sleep schedules and, you know, whatever else mm-hmm. when the baby comes, but they don't talk about like, oh, by the way, you're going to become a totally different right. person. Right. Um, it's like that just part is totally glossed over. Yeah. And a lot of what you hear is based on stereotypes rather than real science. And of course that bothers me. So, cause I like to know what's the real science here. So can you start with the basics and tell us what exactly are the hormone changes and the brain changes? And maybe we start with mothers and people who experience pregnancy and postpartum. then we can go into other parents.
0: Yes. So I like to say that there are two things that change the brain. One is hormones and the other is experience. And we talk so much about hormones during pregnancy, you know, increases in estrogen and progesterone and spikes in oxytocin and changes in your prolactin system. We so often frame those things as, you know, these changes are helping shape your body so that you can carry this pregnancy to term. And then they're also playing an important role in initiating childbirth and lactation. And we really don't talk about what they're doing to the brain. And these are all neurochemicals too. And what researchers now understand is that they are essentially priming the brain, they're making it more plastic or malleable, so that the brain will essentially be ready to receive our babies, who are these really incredibly powerful stimuli for the brain. And so the hormones help us to be ready for our babies, but then our babies themselves shape us. It's the experience of caring for them that really creates the adaptive parental brain that we are in the early postpartum period we're kind of propelled into a hyper responsive state we're made to be really our attention is a kind of hyper focused on our baby so that we go back to try to meet their needs again and again the research shows that in the early postpartum period the brain regions that are involved with motivation and vigilance and meaning making are really highly active in response to our babies. And that's really like compelling us to go back again and again, to pay really close attention to, to our babies and to go back again and again to try to meet their needs. And then over time, it's thought that that like early intensity kind of evens out that we basically get better at understanding our babies' internal mental states and emotions and reflecting those things back in our own bodies and responding to them. And so it's thought that that early intensity sort of evens out. And instead, the brain regions that are involved in social cognition, reading another person and interpreting interpreting their mental states is like fine-tuned over time. And so it's really like those hormonal changes are preparing us for parenting. But then it's our interactions With our babies themselves and their particular needs and personalities. And that ultimately shapes our own, you know, parental brain into this flexible, adaptive state that our babies need us to be in.
1: Amazing. So I love how you describe that, because I think, you know, you're talking about this hyper focus, you're talking about the areas of our brain involved in social cognition, like getting stronger and more fine tuned and And it sounds like a strength to me, you know, these sounds like these all sound like good changes. And I think when we hear mommy brain, you know, people are talking about like being scatterbrained and forgetful. And, you know, personally, I take offense to that term because I've been pregnant or breastfeeding, you know, basically for the last 10 years, I'm my fourth pregnancy right now. And I'm like, if that's true, then I have not been a competent individual for the last 10 years, which I just don't believe is true. And I think this, stereotype exists out there to, you know, make mothers feel like they aren't competent and they aren't able to achieve anything outside of being a mother. And I think it's very important to correct that myth. So can you tell us, is there any truth to this? You know, you've talked about the hyper focus, you've talked about some of these strengths, but is there any truth to the increased forgetfulness, the increased like scatterbrain idea of mommy brain?
0: Yeah, I'm so glad you asked this. So I really don't like the phrase mommy brain at all. I also take offense to it, even though I wrote a book called Mother Brain, right? So what we know uh, about the science is that what we know from the science is that there is some evidence of small and temporary memory deficits during pregnancy. But again, small and temporary. And The issue I have is that if we talk about anything related to mother's brains, that's what we talk about. But it's really just one small sliver of a much more complex and interesting picture of how our brains adapt to parenthood. And yeah, you're right. Like there are these strengths that we gain. This is not a neurodegenerative time. And part of the problem is that researchers have only just begun to look at this in human mothers and human parents to see like what do we gain from parenthood they've done for years they've sort of been quantifying or trying to quantify with quite mixed results that forgetful frazzled stereotype and they're only beginning to look at what we gain and what they've found so far is pretty amazing
1: yes i mean that is amazing because i think you know the ways I have grown in terms of empathy and other areas of social cognition as a mother, it's like that has brought extreme, you know, there's been extreme benefits to my work life as well. And in yeah. my work life is related to parenting. So right. it's, like, it's a little bit more closely tied, but I've heard from a lot of other mothers who have said that, you know, I feel like I have these new strengths that I didn't have before. So I think it's very important to remember that like it isn't just all negative, that there are some, yeah. you know, some real strengths that are added with parenting.
0: Yeah. I think it's important to note that, like, this is a pretty young field. So we only have information right now on, like, what happens in the early postpartum period. We have a few studies that go out, you know, a couple of years out from, from childbirth. And then we have a few studies that look at, older parents in much later life, and that look at parenthood as a potential neuroprotective factor for the brain. But there's like a whole very large middle there, right? That like, I have so many questions that I some of which I outline in the book, but like, what does parenthood mean for how we connect to other people who aren't our children? How what does it mean for how we connect with our partners? What does it mean for our creativity and our multitask management and our just like long-term cognitive load, where like there's like been a lot of like art, in some ways like psychology, but not a lot of like neuroscience that's focused on that. And I think I hope that's coming.
1: Yes, I really hope so too. That would be really interesting. I always say that working parents are the most efficient people in the world because it's like, you know, we're not, we don't waste any time during our day. We are like getting it done. I was working as a part-time psychologist and right after I had my first, and I remember my supervisor told me that I saw more patients as a part-time psychologist than two full-time people combined. Wow. And I was like, that is the power of a working mother. <laughs> you know, like, We get in, we get it yeah. done. Yep. Yeah, no time to waste. <laughs> yes, we're efficient. And I think that's a huge strength. You know, We've heard a lot about changes to the mother's brain or the person who's experiencing pregnancy and postpartum. But what about the father or the partner's brain or, you know, also adoptive and foster parents who didn't, you know, serve in that parent role but didn't give birth and experience postpartum?
0: Yeah, I think this is a really important message of the book that this is not just a a story for mothers or gestational parents. This science really applies to everyone who's really committed to caring for children. And overwhelmingly, the science is still... Focus predominantly on gestational mothers. But what we have in fathers and others is really interesting and tells a very similar story that they too are shaped by the same two things hormones and experience. And what we see in fathers is that they go through significant shifts in hormones as fatherhood approaches, they have changes to their testosterone system to their prolactin system, which we often think of as a milk-making hormone, but it's really involved in bonding. They experience similar spikes in oxytocin when they interact with their babies that mothers do, and they have significant changes in activity and connectivity across what researchers call the global parental caregiving network in the brain, so brain regions that are highly involved in, in caregiving. And now we have research recently that also shows that these structural changes that we see in mothers' brains, like the actual change in volume that mothers experience across pregnancy in the postpartum period, specifically in brain regions involved in social cognition, that that's present in fathers too. <laughs> so they have kind of all of the similar domains of change that mothers do that The activity and connectivity and these anatomical changes, these structural changes to their brains. One interesting thing to note is there seems to be kind of a dose effect for fathers. There's an important study that came out of Israel a few years ago that looked at gay fathers and straight couples and found that basically across all of the fathers in the study, the the more involved a father was in direct caregiving of their child and, and being really responsible for doing that work of reading their social cues and responding to them, the more time they committed to that, the more significant change they had and or connectivity and activity in two brain regions that were specific to um, social cognition. So it was a dose effect. You do you do that work, you engage in caregiving in a meaningful way, and you and you have more adaptive change.
1: That is so, so interesting. And I think I've experienced that in my own life. So as we've had, we have three kids, and we're about to have our fourth. And as we have more kids, my husband has gotten spent more and more time doing child care because, you know, one person just I can't do it right <laughs> And he, you know, now is he'll like, and I've told him about all the science because I'm just such a nerd about it. I just love talking about it, and he'll be like, "I can experience the oxytocin yeah. like after cuddling with our baby." I'm like, "Yeah, this is amazing!" And you know, I've definitely seen that change yeah. at our in my own family as well. Yeah, that's great. You said that you started researching and writing about the shifts in mothers' brains. Um, Because of your own postpartum experiences, can you share a little bit about some of your own experiences that led you to write this book?
0: Yeah. So my son was born on a little bit on the small side. He was five pounds and 12 ounces. And I just remember feeling like he was so tiny and so vulnerable. And could I do it? Could I give him what he needed? And like, did I have what it took? That worry was kind of this like constant static in my mind. I felt like I'm supposed to (laughs) know how to do this, but I, I don't, I'm, and I'm, and can I figure it out? And I, I guess it was just, it was just that, like this feeling of uncertainty and, and overwhelm and it was constant there was some research that was coming out at the time around maternal anxiety specifically that was really, you know, focused on these brain regions that this hypervigilance, this hyper responsiveness that many people feel in the early postpartum period. And I was reading the science and seeing like, oh, like these brain changes happen in all gestational parents, right? So it's not just those who experience anxiety, but it's like part of this adaptive process that happens to the brain. And it's possible that sometimes it goes wrong, right? Or it's just like too intense. And that's when you feel this anxiety. But these brain changes are happening in everyone and we're not talking about it. And that really helped me to reframe my experience to see like, okay, so this worry and sense of overwhelm that I'm feeling is something I need to like look at and address, but also maybe it's part of a productive process that I'm going through that's shaping me into the parent that I need to be. That really like set me off on this path to to think about like, wow, like, okay, the brain changes. And what else am I missing? Because we're not talking about that.
1: Yes, that is so important. You know, I read a research study recently showing that nearly 100% of parents experience um, these intrusive thoughts with their babies, which are, you know, the idea of like, what if I fell down the stairs holding my baby right now? Yes. And, you know, I I definitely experienced those as a new parent and they're extremely disturbing. Yes. And they kind of come out of nowhere and you're like, what is wrong with me that I'm thinking about that? And it's so normal, but right. like we never talk about it. It's like, it's just one of those things that it's like, Everybody's experiencing it, but when you experience it for the first time and nobody's warned you about that, it's scary. And yeah, it's like, you know, you have this thought of like, what what is wrong with me that I'm these thoughts are just popping into my brain out of nowhere.
0: Yeah. and I certainly had them. I mean, i I remember like trying to take my baby to the grocery store for the first time and just being in like a full body sweat. <laughs> you know like it just the, something that felt so normal and basic was just it felt terrifying from like, getting them into the car, figuring out how to like manage the grocery cart, all of the people around you, getting them back to the cart and to, to the car with all of the groceries, it just it's everything. I the way I describe it in the book is that it's kind of like the window of our attention is closed so that we can just really like focus on our babies and at the same time like the threats, the potential threats that cross that plane are feel much bigger. Right. Because we're so intensely focused on them and everything else we sort of see in relationship to their safety. It's really disorienting. But if you can look at it from like an evolutionary perspective, our babies, more than anything, our newborn babies need our attention more than anything, even more than our love. Right. They need our attention in order to stay alive. And they have all of these needs, these constantly changing needs that they need us to respond to. They can't feed themselves. They can't keep themselves clean or warm or well-fed and they need us to do it. And they need us to do it even when we really don't know how to do it. <laughs> so like they, they capture our attention and they hold on to it real tight.
1: Yeah. So that makes me think, you know, there's this idea out there that parenting, but mothering in particular should come to us like instinctually, like the minute you, they place the baby in your arms, it's like all of a sudden, you know exactly what to do. And, and I remember having my first baby and, you know, older people, especially telling me like, just follow your instincts. Like, don't listen to anybody, just follow your instincts. And I'm like, that's actually not helpful because I don't know what my instincts are. You know, and I feel like as, you know, I'm about to have my fourth child and I'm finally getting some sort of maternal instinct, you know, but it's come from years of experience. You know, it's come from, you know, some sort of chemical change that instantly happened the minute they handed me my baby.
0: And it's not an instinct then, right? It's a, it is a process of learning. It is what you have earned over, what did you say? 10 years of caring for children. And caring for different children and meeting their needs in different ways and 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 struggling, right, through that process, I'm sure, and making mistakes and trying new things and doing better next time. What New Parenthood is, like, inherently a process of really intense learning. That's it from, like, a very common sense way of looking at it. Like, it's you're learning how to do this. It's just two things make it extra hard. <laughs> One is that... We're primed for really intense learning because of our hormonal changes and because the really intense needs of our babies. And the other thing that makes us hard is this myth that we're supposed to know how to do it, that it's not a process. And that's a real problem. So the brain science definitely backs
1: up this idea that the maternal instinct from the minute your baby is born is a myth.
0: I would argue, yes. And it's a big piece of Of my book, um, looking at why that is and what damage has been done by that myth. An instinct, you know, by definition, is a rigid pattern of behavior, something that unfolds in us automatically and universally, similar effects across the whole species. And that's not what happens with new parenthood. You know, we. What New Parenthood is, is a stage of development. And there are, there are things that happen that follow similar patterns across the species, but that change depending on our circumstances, depending on the kind of pregnancy we have, depending on our social context and the challenges and strengths that we bring to the role, the way our brain has already been shaped by our life experience. And that change depending on our baby and their own sense of agency and genetics. And I mean, I can talk a little bit about how we got this old idea, if you want to, but yes, so, I mean, this was a big part of my research for the book. I, basically, when I started looking at the science and asking, like, why isn't it already more of a part of our conversation around what parenthood is, like, the human research on the parental brain is relatively new it's come out really in like the la- a lot of it's come out in the last 20 years or so but there's a pretty robust research literature around other animals that dates back back to the 60s um, and I thought like why isn't this already a part of the story of what it means to become a parent and started realizing like oh well that's partly because we have this other story that's already so pervasive in our society. And that's the story of maternal instinct. And I started looking at like, well, how did we get that story? Where did it come from? And how did it become part of scientific theory? And really, the truth is, like that is an idea that comes from religious and moral notions of what it means to be a woman and a mother that in the late 19th and early 20th centuries were written into scientific theory, partly by Charles Darwin, by the social Darwinists who followed him, and then by early psychologists who really wrote instinct theory. One example uh, that I like to talk about is William McDougall, who was an early psychologist, he wrote this kind of long list of human instincts um, that included maternal instinct, which he he described as being stronger than any other instinct, including fear itself. But he also wrote that the more a woman is educated, the more her maternal instinct will decline. Wow! Oh my God. He advocated for the preservation of gender norms, including limited education for women and limited rights for women um, to own property or to vote or to divorce. And William McDougall was a really noted eugenicist, and for him, the preservation of maternal instinct was really closely entwined with the preservation of white supremacy. That's really, you know, where this idea, came from it was a means of of social control particularly for white women and it was then just kind of recast again and again over time by like a long a long list of experts who used different words to describe this but carried it forward all the way you know you you mentioned this idea of like trusting your instincts trust yourself that w- those were like the famous first words of dr spock's book you know trust yourself this idea that like you know how to do it like that that those were words that gave a lot of women relief because they had for decades been kind of told exactly how to raise their children and he was revolutionary because you know he said well actually you can you know how to do this trust yourself but inherent in that was also this sense of like biological essentialism that like you've got it you've got what you need to do this and it's written into your biology wow okay I had no idea about
1: this history that
0: is really
1: fascinating I think it's it's really great now as mothers you know we have the choices you know we know that more education doesn't reduce our material instinct or capacity for caregiving right yeah so it's great that we know this and and as mothers you know Now we are encouraged to a certain extent to pursue a career and even pursue our own passions. And and that's so wonderful. But, you know, something I've struggled with myself as a mother is, you know, I have my own career ambitions. I have my own passions. I have relationships like friendships in my marriage that don't involve my children.
0: Right.
1: These are important to me, too, but especially in. The periods of when I've had babies, you know, I do feel those brain changes that make me hyper attuned to the baby. Mm -hmm. And I do feel this worry and this fear about separating from my children. Mm -hmm. Like these are real experiences. And so I can't pretend like that doesn't exist. Yeah, absolutely. And so, how do we, and this is a big question, but how do we as mothers kind of balance this, you know, our professional ambitions and our other relationships and our passions and like, these are important things too. And, you know, I know if I spend every second with my children, like I wouldn't be a great mother either. So it's like we're balancing all these different things, but we also have strong, you know, these real brain changes that are making us hyper-focused on children. So how do we balance that? Yeah.
0: I mean, so first I'll just say like, it is hard. (laughs) There is no real solution to that. I think one, one important distinction though is like, In those early months, you know, when you are in that kind of like hyper-responsive, hyper-attentive state, we should be given the freedom to focus on our babies. That's why we need parental leave. Like, that is a time when our biology is, is wanting us to give them all of our attention. And we need the support to do that. And... That's why parental leave is important for mothers and partners, you know, any, any caregivers of babies. It's essential to support. We talk a lot about why babies need that, but parents need it too, including fathers and non gestational parents. They need that time to devote their attention to their babies because it's changing them also. It's helping them to adapt to this new role. So I think sometimes the answer is to, like, acknowledge respect that biology and and what your baby needs and what you need as a parent. And then the other piece of this is rooted in, you know, to some degree our overemphasis on the mother-child dyad as like the only essential relationship in a child's life. And one thing I talk a lot about in the book is how we are cooperative rearers. That's what humans are. And we have this conservative idea, uh, particularly in American society where and specifically particular parts of American society where like the the nuclear family is king and and that mothers belong at home with their their babies. That children are the response the sole responsibility of mothers. And the reality is that's never really been the human way <laughs> until quite recently that, that we've always, even from the earliest humans, one thing that set us apart from other primates was that we relied on other people to help raise our children. That's how we were able to have babies closer together, which is the thing that shaped us into an intensely social species and made us the most dominant primate species on the pla- on the planet. So uh, human nature is really rooted in this identity as cooperative rearers. And I think we've lost that in a lot of ways in our society and I don't totally know the way forward and how to rebuild that except one thing I think about a lot is how we value caregivers like how we invest in caregivers and not just mothers. So one way is to give adequate parental leave. Another way is to to really say like the work of people who are helping to raise children, that, you know, the nannies, the early childhood educators, the daycare providers, partners and grandparents and aunts and, and neighbors and babysitters, you know, these, these people are not just like, backstops to a neglectful mother. <laughs> they are essential um, child rearers who have also you know, developed these specialized skills for raising children. And so we need to invest in them. We need to pay them what they're worth and invest in the infrastructure that supports their work.
1: Yes, that is such an important point. You know, when you hear statistics on how You know, especially early childhood educators are paid in the United States. You know, so many of them have to live below the poverty line. It's, like, unbelievable um, how little we value, like, I mean, these are the people raising the next generation. Like, how is this not the most important thing in our
0: society? Right. And when we think about it from, like, the perspective of the neuroscience, so we don't have the research on this yet, but I hope we get it eventually. But this idea that, like, experience raising a child changes the brain like how does that apply to people who spend their days with children as, as caregivers, as, as classroom leaders? Um, we don't know that yet, but so often we think of, we think about what the work they do as, you know, low wage work, as, as like sort of soft skills, but like they are specialized baby tenders and they, their brains have adapted in ways that help them to read and respond to those babies' needs. So we should see value in that.
1: I could not agree with you more. I mean, these the people who are caregivers, especially to young children, are essential to our society, um, especially if we're not willing to give parents any paid leave. It's like, we need these people. Yes. Um, you can't have one without the other. Um, so I'm so curious to know, so personally, how has your understanding of the brain changes with parenting changed your own day-to-day parenting perspectives on parenting?
0: I'll mention two things. One, you know, it really helped me to feel kind of to reframe my early postpartum experience to maybe feel less guilt about how much I worried and to see that as like an intense period of time that I had to go through to become the parent that I needed to be and um, to see how it helped me learn. You know, it, it helped me to learn how to take care of my child and also to learn what I needed for support in doing that. And the other way I think about this almost every day is that it's given me really like a lot more grace and patience with myself as a parent Specifically, you know, this idea that I'm not supposed to know what to do all the time, that parenting is a process, and it's a learning process, specifically, part of that process is making mistakes and using them to figure out how to do better next time. That is a message that I really carry close to my heart.
1: Yes, that is so, so important. One more question just to end this out. If you could go back in time and tell yourself one thing as a new mother, what do you think it would be?
0: I think it would be that you're doing great. Like, you're doing great. <laughs> just take a breath. Like, truly, I mean, it sounds so simple, but you get so caught up in whether you're doing it right in that time of life. And I wish I had just let myself take my time and like feel that that's what I needed. I, what I needed was time and, and I was doing great. I, I was, I, yeah, I was learning along the way. I totally
1: echo that feeling, you know, that it's so important to know that everybody is struggling in that, you know, post early, especially the early postpartum period. And just because nobody talks about, you know, are not enough people are talking about like people are starting to talk about it, but yeah, it's so important to know that everybody's struggling. Like, yes, this is universally hard, and I always say, you know, how going from zero to one child for me was the hardest, and everybody has a different opinion. But I'm like, you, everything about your life, like, a hundred percent changes. It's like, right, it's everything is different, and
0: there's mm-hmm. nothing like that. Yeah, it's something I like to say as often as possible that this stage of life this developmental stage is really inherently distressing (laughs) like I I've interviewed lots of people for this book I've talked to lots of people since then and to a person every single person experiences some sort of psychological distress whether it's from like fertility issues to pregnancy complications and traumatic childbirth or postpartum experience or going back to work like it is just there is distress. And so everyone struggles. It is totally normal to need support. What doesn't have to be normal, what shouldn't be normal is suffering in that struggle. And we need to do a better job to make make sure that fewer people do.
1: Yes, yes. It's so important to remember that, you know, distress is part of it. Anxiety is part of it. Uh, the normal feelings of mood swings are part of it. But if you are experiencing distress to the extent that you feel like you need help, it's impacting your day-to-day functioning to seek help yeah. from a mental health professional. Because I think, you know, it's so important, you know, we need to normalize the distress. Right. Also say that, you know, if you feel like yeah. you are, you cannot cope with it right. yourself right. to seek help because it's so important.
0: And see. the thing is like, it's also normal to need the support, right? Like everyone needs some of it. You cannot do this by, by yourself. And so, if you're not getting it and you're struggling, then it's normal to, to seek it out, to find new sources, which might be a psychologist, it might be your OBGYN, it might be a different support group, or it might be medication. Like it's just, it's normal. It's normal to need the support.
1: Yes. And I think that's such an important message from the science you've been talking about that we aren't supposed to do this alone. Like there's a reason that, you know, other humans are kind of drawn into caregiving as well. Like, the birthing parent is not supposed to be doing this alone. Like, we need support. We need help. And like, you know, what, however it is you form that village of support for you and your child, like, you need that.
0: Human mothers from the very beginning have always been really important, and they've never been enough. Such an important point.
1: It should not all fall on our shoulders. Like, that could be emphasized enough. So this has been beyond fascinating. Can you please tell my readers and listeners where to find more information about you and your
0: book? They can get um, the book, Mother Brain, How Neuroscience is Rewriting the Story of Parenthood, wherever they buy books in the online or in their local bookstore. And there's more information about it at motherbrainbook.com. And they'll also find a link there to sign up for my newsletter, which is called Between Us.
1: Well, that has been so helpful. Thank you so much um, for all this very interesting information. And um, I really enjoyed it. So thank you for coming on to the show today.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Parenting Translator is a nonprofit organization, so all of these podcasts and the information they provide are given to you for free. If you would like to support our work, please subscribe to this podcast and rate and review it. Thank you so much.